John Newton embarked on his first sea voyage at 11 years of age. Later, as a teenager, he was forced aboard the HMS Harwich, but but deserted and was later captured and flogged. That led to him being discharged to a slaver ship. Newton's character during his early years was rebellious and prideful. He derided Christianity. He nearly drowned once when he fell from a party on board a ship. Remembering his past life, he would later say, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. It was in the late 1740s, during a tumultuous storm at sea, that Newton came face to face with the reality of God. During the turmoil of the storm, he was alarmed. His mind went to the verse in Proverbs that says, Because I have called and ye have refused, I also will laugh at your calamity. See, Newton had chosen how he was going to respond to God. Rejection. Yet during that storm, he began to change. I say began to change. Newton would go on to work in the slave trade for years, even after that experience. It would take time for him to see all the evils of his occupation. But as the years went on, he felt a growing repulsion for it even as his faith in Christ grew deeper. He would later famously assist William Wilberforce in his efforts to bring the British slave trade to an end. Church, this morning, John Newton's story reminds us of the importance of how we respond to Jesus. See, when when Jesus calls, we either reject him or we trust in him. That's what we saw last week, right? There's no neutral choice with Jesus. And today we continue on in that same theme, learning more about how our response to Jesus will lead either to life and light or death and darkness. So follow along as I read Luke 11, starting in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation, it seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Okay, well, one of the ways I think we could summarize this passage today is with two imperatives, two commands. 
Believe, be careful. Believe, be careful. So let's start with believe. And we see this in verses 29 through 32. So Luke uh, is a doctor in the first century AD. He actually never really met Jesus, though he was a companion of the Apostle Paul in some of his missionary travels. You can read about all of that in the book of Acts, which is kind of Luke part two, also written by Luke. And as we've seen throughout the study, Luke is a careful historian. So in the beginning of this gospel account, in verses one through four, kind of the prologue to Luke, we see how he he explains how he's worked to compile, to assemble reliable accounts of Jesus's ministry in order to put together this narrative. And in our first study in the, in the Gospel of Luke, which I think was like almost two years ago now, uh, he, he showed how as he was compiling this narrative, there were still people left who knew Jesus, or we, we observed this about Luke. There were still people left who would have seen Jesus, would have known about Jesus, and could have condemned Luke's writing as fraudulent, if indeed it was. And so, friends, that is one of the reasons we can have confidence in the historical reliability and accuracy of this book. It tells us the truth about Jesus. So what is the truth here, starting in verse 29? Well, Luke tells us the crowds are increasing around the Lord. Uh, We saw back last week in verse 16 how there were people, you know, there was lots of different responses to Jesus, but one of those in in verse 16 was that there were those who kept seeking from Jesus a sign. Remember that? And now we kind of pick up that theme again. So signs were an important part of Jesus' ministry. So his his powerful healings, his his exorcisms like we saw last week, his miracles were, were meant in part to authenticate his identity who he was, and his mission, what he had come to do. And his signs were just spectacular. They were awe-inspiring. But we see this, this thread throughout the Gospels that some folks are seeking a sign from Jesus with wrong motives. They're trying to test him. Their hearts are full of unbelief. And here in our passage this morning, we see one of those occasions Jesus says in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Now, asking for a sign isn't evil in and of itself. Jesus expressly did signs so we might believe in him. That's a big part of the purpose of the Gospel of John. Do you remember that? And at the end of of John, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and and thereabouts, we see that John wrote about Jesus' signs for a reason, and that was... So we might believe. But these Jewish crowds, by asking for a sign, are revealing their hearts. Their hearts are hard, full of unbelief. As John puts it in his gospel, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What's more, these Jews have seen Jesus' signs, right? They just saw an exorcism last week. But they want more. They want, they want something different, perhaps. Something grander, greater, more majestic. I think for some of them, perhaps, they're seeking a sign. But they're not seeking a savior. Well, Jesus says in verse 29, In light of all of this, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, there are different views 
about what this sign of Jonah exactly is. In Matthew's gospel, the sign of Jonah is related to the resurrection. You can go read that. That was a good preacher right there. So in Matthew's gospel, the sign of of Jonah is related to the resurrection. Uh, Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Jesus will spend similar time in the belly of the earth, right? So Matthew makes it pretty clear the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Christ. It's his powerful resurrection. And, And that may very well be Luke's view in his gospel, but I think there's also good reason to notice how Luke actually doesn't mention that. He's placing a slightly different emphasis on this sign than Matthew does. He's not contradicting Matthew, of course not. But he is highlighting a a different aspect. He's highlighting the need to respond to a message. See, Jonah traveled to the despised city of Nineveh with a message of judgment. He proclaimed to the Ninevites that they would soon be visited by the wrath of God. And as he preached, they responded in repentance humbling themselves to the literal dust of the earth to see if there's just any hope that God would forgive them. And now in Luke 11, Jesus says he is the greater Jonah, coming with a message of repentance. Just like Jonah's preaching brought Nineveh to its knees, so Jesus' message will, must, can do likewise. I think this seems to be a good understanding of what Luke is trying to drive at with this sign of Jonah. This sign, in part, is the message and its appropriate response, which is repentance. But how does this evil generation receive the message? Unbelief, skepticism, even rejection. Jesus makes that clear in verses 31 to 32. He draws on two Old Testament stories to show his current listeners who knew the Old Testament really well how deeply in danger they are. So look at verse 31. Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So later this afternoon, you can go back and read the first bit of 1 Kings chapter 10. There you'll find the story of this queen from the south, this queen of Sheba, and how she visited King Solomon hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. And and if you remember the story, if you know it, you can see parallels. See, this foreign queen had heard of Solomon's wisdom. And so she came to test him, to see if those things were really true. She asked him questions and questions and questions, and the first king says he just answered each one with incredible wisdom. And that continued until she was pretty much out of breath, all done with questioning, just completely overwhelmed by the amazing, awe-inspiring wisdom of Solomon. And so at that point, she just kind of threw in the towel. She's like, test over. Bless your servants, Solomon. Bless your God, Solomon. Man, I heard the report that you were wise. I didn't hear the half of it. And she believed. Test over. Right? And here in Luke 11, Jesus is using that story to contrast with the Jews listening to him at that very moment. See, they've heard his wisdom. They've heard his instruction. His teaching. 
his proclamation of a coming kingdom. They just, they just keep asking for more, more reason to believe, more, more signs to authenticate, more, just a little bit more, more, more signs before I actually fall at your feet and praise you. See, they've indeed heard reports about Jesus, and now they've seen him with their very own eyes. Unlike the Queen of Sheba, though, they've still hardened their hearts. And so Jesus says that at the last judgment, this generation will be condemned by that queen because she pursued the wisdom of Solomon, and now something far greater than Solomon is here to be pursued. And the Jews will find that they have rejected the very wisdom of God himself. Well, Jesus isn't done. See, there are more witnesses, he says, to the rightful condemnation of this evil generation. In fact, the next witness Jesus talks about is another evil generation. It's the Ninevites themselves. I mean, talk about evil. They were the epitome of godlessness. But Jesus says in verse 32 that even the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here now. I mean, just think about that ancient city of Jonah. We studied through Jonah about four years ago. Terrible city, terrible people. And they were in line for God's judgment. They were on death row. But through the preaching of Jonah, God intervened to wake them up and save them. And they repented of their wickedness. And so, since they responded to God's word in faith, Jesus says they will be able to testify against the current generation in Luke 11, which is responding with no faith at all. Unbelief. You can imagine these sort of self-assured Jews, these Pharisees and scribes, as Matthew calls them, on that final day. And you can just imagine them, I don't think it'll happen like this, but using some sanctified imagination. You, you imagine them, they're before the throne of God. They're waiting to see if anyone will have the guts or even the reason to stand up and judge them, to condemn them. And, and as they wait, and it's kind of like, you know, any, everybody speak up now, forever hold your peace. And they're waiting, and then they see a stir on the edge of the crowd. Some people start to stand up. And they're thinking, wait, who could possibly have a problem with us? We're in trouble. Oh, Oh, no. is that Tom the Pharisee? Yeah, I never paid him back the 25 denarii he owed me. I owed him, right? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll fix this. And then they see the people more clearly as they come up to the front, and it's Ninevites. I mean, certainly there has been some mistake. But no, the shock value in Jesus' words is clear. Jesus says even the pagan, godless people of Nineveh will stand and rise up in condemnation over God's people Israel because they responded in faith. God's people have responded in unbelief. You know, I wonder if at the final day some casino owners from Las Vegas will stand up and condemn some so-called evangelical churches for saying all the right things and not truly ever repenting and trusting in Christ. I wonder if some of the sleazy politicians from Washington, D.C. will stand up from the swamp that was never drained 
and condemn some so-called religious folk on that last day because when they heard the message of repentance, they responded in faith while the religious have just become dull and unresponsive to Jesus in their life of ease. See, church, it's not about your worth or your background or your good works before God. Jesus is saying it's about how you respond to him when he calls you to repent and believe. I mean, Nineveh was an evil generation if ever there was, ever there was one, but they had turned from their incredible sin to the incredible mercy of God. So the Jews might have some good Sunday school answers. They may look the part, but their eyes are closed, and they will not believe in Jesus. They ask for more signs. Church, their religious pedigree, their family background, it won't save them. They themselves must respond to Christ. And the same is true for us. Friend, just because you're a Republican or a homeschooler or you're pro-life or you're reformed, none of that will save you on the last day. What matters is how you respond to Jesus. You must believe. Well, moving on then, let's see Jesus's command, be careful, in verses 33 to 36. So we've seen this kind of implicit command to believe in the first part. Let's see now an explicit command to be careful in these last four verses. Look there in verse 33. Jesus gives us this imagery of a light in a room. He says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. It's obvious, right? You, you don't light a lamp and then hide it. I mean, let alone defeating the purpose altogether, it's probably a fire hazard, right? Light is meant to be propped up and seen. Light is meant to be put in a place where as many places as need light can get it. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that his light, the revelation of his truth through his teaching, I mean, it's clear for everyone to see. I mean, it's not like this has been done in a corner. It's not like nobody's heard these things before. I mean, he's been traveling and proclaiming this message. He sent out people with this message. He sent out the 12. He sent out the 72. His light has been clearly shown like a lamp in a dark room. His signs, his truth have been on display. And so the issue is with the response. For those who witness that wide-casting light, are they willing to receive it? So look at verse 34. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. So let's kind of remember what all these things represent. So first, the light is Jesus' teaching. Jesus' light. Jesus' message. What, what's the eye then? Well, the eyes are the eyes of our heart as those listening. It's representing our response to the light, to what he's saying. How are we going to receive it? Jesus is talking about the eyes of the heart. He's talking about belief, about response. 
Daryl Bach, I think, makes it especially clear when he says, the eye both perceives and receives. The eye both perceives and receives. And so it is with our heart eyes. Our heart eyes seek to perceive, to understand, and once we do understand, then our eyes decide how we're going to respond. So each one of us needs to wrestle with how we respond to Jesus. I mean, his truth is shining. It's, it's out there for everyone to see. It speaks to us of sin and, and death and repentance and belief and new life and eternity and peace. But we must decide how we respond. And our, our spiritual response will affect all that we are. You see that in verse 34. When your eye is healthy... So when your perception, your response to Jesus is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. If you understand Jesus, and you perceive him rightly in what he teaches, and you submit your life to that, you will be filled with his truth, filled with his light. You will understand and perceive the world rightly because he is the one who made the world. But if you reject him, you will be plunged into greater ignorance and darkness and sin. What we think about Jesus is incredibly important. A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we get to verse 35 and a warning from Jesus. I don't know about you, but when Jesus is a warning, I think we better listen. He says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. We must believe and be careful. Be careful, friend, lest your vision of Jesus be one not of truth and understanding, but of rejection and darkness. Be careful how you respond to the king's summons. Be careful how you respond to his message. The Pharisees are blinded to the message of Jesus by their unbelief, and so Jesus is kindly warning them. And the warning is for each one of us as well. Everyone in this room, whether Christian or not, must evaluate how we are responding to Jesus right now in our lives. Are we receiving his light, welcoming it in? There's a warning here for religious people who might know a lot about Jesus but don't know him. Friend, examine your heart. Have you committed your life to the king? Does he own you? Or do you just play Christian really well? There's also an exhortation for those of us who are truly in Christ and seeking to pursue him. I mean, think, what does light do to a room? It illumines it, right? My first townhouse, I guess it was, after college, I roomed with two other guys and I don't think it was our fault I think it was our neighbors but I think probably everybody says that we had cockroaches right so when you open when you turn on the light in the kitchen it's just like right 
Things skitter away into corners when light exposes them. Dust becomes visible and floats in the air, and you're like, what am I breathing in all day, right? You can't hide anything when you turn on the light. So Christian, one way to evaluate the health of your spiritual eyesight is whether you're living an honest life before God and others. Are there parts of your life that you do not want exposed by the light? Friend, don't believe the lie that hiding your sin will lead to peace and happiness. The opposite is true. Open yourself up to Jesus who died for you. Open yourself up to other Christians in this church and watch the grace of God bring you more peace than you've ever had before. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the good news is that throughout the Gospels, there's someone who specializes in opening blind eyes. And that's Jesus. He can open your eyes to his truth, and he is powerful to do that. So turn to him. You will never get the rest or the joy your soul desires if you stay in rebellion against him. See, all of us are lost in our rebellion against God, and that's why Jesus came. He came to take our sin on himself and face the penalty for that sin on the cross. And now all who turn to him as the sacrifice in their place before God, all who trust in him will be covered with his forgiveness and given new life. So friend, turn to Jesus. He'll remove the blinders from your eyes and shower you with mercy. It's not just something he does. It's not just on his job description. It's something he loves to do. Well, he concludes there in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. See, for those who are illumined by the light of Christ, by his message of salvation, his light fills us with light so that we become light that shines light to others. You see that? Jesus' light fills us until our whole body is consumed with, with who he is, with his message, with his teaching, with his revelation. And that light then is something we can then shine to others around us. So church family, let the nooks, let the, the crannies of your heart be exposed to that light so you might shine it for all to see. Christian, respond afresh to Jesus today with open-hearted repentance and faith. Give yourself once again to his loving embrace. Don't delay. Don't let pride that's built up in your heart hold you back. You know, pride dims spiritual eyesight. But humility is like a, a lens cleaner for the heart showing us our need and all Jesus can provide. So church, believe and be careful. The light is shining, so be vigilant to continue to allow that light in, to expose you, who, you for who you are. You know who you are. You're a great sinner, a great savior. Those were John Newton's last words. He was 82 when he died. As death approached, he said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner 
and that Christ is a great Savior. He wrote his own epitaph, and here's how it read. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Newton decided how he would respond to Jesus' light. And he didn't just respond once on a ship, he responded throughout the rest of his life. I'm going to let it all in. I'm going to give Jesus my heart. So that even as, as the slave trade he was invo involved in became more and more despicable to him, as the light shone more on his soul, he changed all throughout the rest of his life. The light continued to shine brighter and brighter through him so that we tell his story to, to today. See, Newton's understanding of Jesus and his grace made him humble. And as I thought about this passage, I, I think the application that strikes me the most is humility. I mean, for wretched sinners like the Ninevites, the Pharisees, John Newton, you, me, there's grace. Jesus opens blind eyes, and our response does not earn our salvation. It merely accepts it as a gift. So church, how should this gospel humility shine through us? This, this humility that is nurtured in us as we see that, hey, we're just as hardened as the Pharisees. Hey, we would not choose to receive the light if Jesus did not shine it and open our eyes. How should this gospel humility shine through us? Well, I imagine it should make us a welcoming church with an eye for those who are weary, weak, and worried they aren't good enough for Jesus. I think it should make us a unified church with no sort of unspoken class distinctions in our membership between those Christians of higher rank and those of lesser rank. I think it should make us church members who celebrate gospel growth and gospel success, whether it's happening through our efforts or someone else's. Just three quick ways I think humility should work itself out through Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. See, Newton's most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, provides a wonderful reflection on both how Jesus opens eyes and how we respond and receive him with our eyes of faith. He famously writes, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. How precious did that grace appear? It came to him, the hour I first believed. Church, Jesus opens blind eyes. Let's continue with eyes of faith to receive his light so we might shine it all the more brightly to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the light of Christ. We ask that as those of us who have received that light, that you would help us and humble us. We pray for those uh, who have received that light here in our midst, that you would help us shine it out for others to notice and be attracted to. 
that it wouldn't be a common experience for those who have known us for years to be surprised to hear that we're Christians. Lord, we pray for those here who have not responded with this kind of repentance and faith. We ask that today would be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name, amen.